Hello, curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers. Welcome to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast for the relentlessly curious. This season, our host and Applied Curiosity Lab's chief curiosity seeker, Becky Saltzman, will be sharing the studio with ACL's chief experience producer and favorite sister, Jennifer Felberg. The lens is, and always will be, curiosity. Each week, fun and formal conversations center around one delectable curiosity bite, designed to give your brain the time and ideas to think about thinking, to flex your curiosity muscle, and maybe even revolutionize the way you think. Last Sunday, it was really fun because I was invited to this reunion of all the people that used to work together back in the late 80s, early 90s at Myron Frank department stores and then Macy's. And it's fun because a lot of these people have gone on, stayed in the industry for a long time and have gone on to running big companies like Payless Shoe Source and Burlington Coat Factory. And one of the guys that was there was my store manager back when I was first a department manager. And he had stayed in the business up until about 10 years ago. And I loved him. Bill was great. And he was a great boss. I always thought fondly of the time that I worked for him. So it was really fun catching up with him. And he told me that 10 years ago or a little over 10 years ago, he left thinking he was going to retire, but he failed at retirement. So he joined an organization that did international international first responder organization. And he was all over the world. And I was asking him about how his experience in retail informed the kind of work that he was doing as a first responder in places like Mendanao in the Philippines and in places in Africa, all over the world. And I remembered this story that I had read about these two anthropologists who were asked to join the UN, one of the UN or NGO organizations that was trying to contain and stomp out Ebola during the outbreak a few years back in West Africa. And the story was that there was a whole bunch of things that the native population would do when someone got sick, but it was all described in kind of a spiritual context. And a lot of the natives thought it was very primitive and didn't want to share what they were doing with the international, more sophisticated in their eyes. And the UN and these NGOs essentially were measuring their success by the compliance of the local communities to their Ebola containment and curtailment infrastructures and systems. But they never really were curious about what was already taking place. And then the people there were in curious, also kind of ashamed, I would say, to share their methods. So three weeks went by, according to these anthropologists, where thousands of people died and were infected by Ebola, where it wouldn't have had to happen if the UN and the NGOs had gone in there with curiosity and tried to understand and what the experience is existing. And if the people there weren't so ashamed of their primitive ways, because a lot of the things that infrastructure and a lot of the ways that they were doing dealing with this Ebola was useful. And It made me think about all the times that you read about sophisticated or first world countries going into less developed countries with this paternalistic or patronizing but well-meaning intent. And that leads to the curiosity bite. You ready? So ready. Does experiencing a problem make one better at creating wise solutions? I was in Cuba a couple of months ago 
and I just loved it. I went to Havana and we had a tour guide and he I loved him. He was taking us around and he said, you have to take off your Western goggles, take out your Western thoughts and really understand our way of life and understand how we're living. When he first said that to you, did it make sense? No. You didn't know. I mean, I kind you know, I kind of yeah. But no, I didn't. I was like, okay. I mean, I I have sympathy. I have I have Rahmanis. Rahmanis. You think that you go with this open mind and you just don't know how you impact other people. But he was taking us through and showing us he took us to a ration store and showed us his ration card. Would that be like the equivalent of our grocery stores? <laughs> no, no, not at all. It's like... But they don't have grocery stores. I mean, it's not no, like... No, they don't have okay, grocery so this stores. This is where they go to get their groceries. Yeah, you could call it that. He showed us his ration card and how much they get of what they have. It really looks like a teeny tiny broken down post office. It's kind of what it looks okay. like. And there's like a few things on the shelves. And then it shows like a whiteboard with how much your ration points you have to use for different things, mm. I think. And, you know, showed that he could get this tiny little bit of coffee and a tiny little bit of rice and a tiny little bit of beans. So most of the stuff that they use to feed their families, they buy off the streets. And there are these bicycle riders that with big bags of potatoes or big bags of onions and things like that, that you supplement beyond your ration card. And <laughs> so this potato guy was riding by in his big bag of potatoes and he said, I have to buy potatoes and it's a dollar for a week's worth of potatoes <laughs> or a month's worth of potatoes or something like that. And I go, well, that's not bad. That's not bad at all. A dollar for all those potatoes. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes, you're looking at this with your Western goggles again. You need to understand how much it takes to get a dollar and how long it takes to get a dollar. And I, it just blew me away. So the question, the curiosity bite. Yeah, you do need to experience things a lot of times to make creative and wise decisions. But then there are times when you can put yourself in somebody else's shoes and really try to understand and have empathy so that you can make those decisions. But like you said, I think you have to have curiosity and think of all those different angles and different stakeholders and all of that stuff. Well, you mentioned the term Rahmanis, which yeah. is one of our favorite Yiddish words, which means kind of a combination, a mashup of compassion and mercy, but also pity. Yeah. And pity's not... I don't think we use it that much as pity. I think some people do, but I, I know for me, Rahmanis is more... Mercy and compassion. It's a positive thing. Yeah. I have Rahmanis for that person. You think about the difference between empathy, which is experiencing someone else's feelings, and sympathy, which is understanding someone else's suffering. I always get those two confused, empathy and sympathy. So I'm glad you explained the two. Thank you. There is understanding a problem and there's experiencing a problem. You can experience a problem without understanding it because you're in it in the moment. Mm -hmm. And you can also experience a problem and understand it. Mm -hmm. You can understand a problem without experiencing it because you've never experienced it, but you understand it. You've researched it. You've studied it. You've interviewed people, whatever. Right. What do you think is more important experiencing or understanding in order to create wise solutions not make not make decisions but wise solutions understanding understanding i think so more important yeah what do you think well i think understanding because for example i met rain wilson from the office cool and his wife at a fundraiser Wait, what's his name in in dwight uh, dwight 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 Rain and his wife, Holly, or Holiday, she's from Portland. They were here for a fundraiser for their organization, Lee Day. And Lee Day is an 
organization where they go into Haiti and educate the girls and empower the girls because like a lot of research indicates that empowering women and young girls has a greater net impact than any kind of other social change in a country that is less developed. And they were describing how when some of these young women become more empowered or even obtain more resources, it becomes dangerous for them because it's a culture kind of like the tall poppy syndrome. The tall poppy is an Australian cultural term that refers to people who stand out for their high abilities, enviable qualities, or visible success. Rising above the pack is considered antisocial and countercultural. Tall poppies generate hostility and elicit a host of undermining behaviors to bring them down a peg. Like, you you think you're so cool, I'm going to take you down. Right. And we have that to a certain extent if people flaunt it. You high and mighty, snooty, polluty. But this compelling desire to cut down high achievers is called the tall poppy syndrome. It's one thing if you feel jealous or envious of someone because the way they flaunt their wealth or their resources or whatever things that they've achieved. But it's another thing if it's inculcated in the culture. Right. And you are going to go there to try to empower these young women. And what are the unintended? screw it all up. Yeah. What are the unintended consequences? What is the wiser solution just to keep everyone down? I had a friend who was telling me that their daughter went to somewhere maybe in Asia or Africa, I can't remember. And they were going on either a mission or some kind of trip where they're helping people out. And and it was about uh, sex trafficking. Oh, yeah. And she went in there with her Western goggles and really got an earful from the from the community that they were resentful because they were like, you don't understand how this helps our families and this how this helps our community. And some of these girls think it as an honor. This is what they're saying to this girl. And she came back. We have to be careful when we go in and with our mindset and try to solve all their problems without actually, like you said, being curious or asking. So. I yeah, I would have asked, let me talk to the girls. Yeah, exactly. But... <laughs> I mean, your father is saying this or some of the elders are saying this. It right. just depends on from whose perspective. A lot of the work that we do mm-hmm. in our ideation workshops, and it really comes back to the integration, identifying stakeholders, understanding their motivations, but then also taking their perspectives. I love the example that you use with the nursing home. Oh, yeah. When you and I don't know if this is just because my experience or if this is universal, but if you are training to be an administrator in a nursing home, you're in this year long program. And when you go through this year program, one of the things that the people I saw going through the program had to do was spend, I think, two nights and two days or three days in a nursing home and experience what the residents experience. And what did people say was the most shocking thing? The uncomfortable bed and the institutionalized way they are being taken care of. And when you call in and have somebody come and help you, it takes forever. We experienced that when we spent the night with dad in the nursing home. And he, we were hearing him complain a lot. And we thought, oh, dad, you're just a complainer. But then when we actually spent the night there, we did experience long, long wait times for 
the call, which I understand because I worked on the other side of it and saw this one CNA to 15 patients or 15 residents that you have to help them get in the shower, help them get changed, help them in the bathroom, give their medication, their shots. So you're pushing a call bell and they've got three people ahead of you. So I understand that side too. Well, I saw the other day on Facebook, someone that I know is a big political strategist and particularly for the Democratic Party. And he posted something where he was certainly explaining and empathizing and had compassion for the homeless situation, Mm, but essentially said, this has gotten out of hand. This is ridiculous. And a call to find new government officials who can address this problem. Now, in that thread, it was really interesting because different people that work in different parts of homeless advocacy weighed in Mm -hmm. and one person on mental illness. But the one that was most and then some people said that I agree and this is horrible. and We need to kick out the governmental officials because they're not doing what they need to be doing. And then one woman who is very involved and this is her life's work. I think she works for an organization that advocates for affordable housing. So they she said that you've got to read this study. Don't just put on Facebook. You've got more power than you think. And you shouldn't just use that power by putting some post on Facebook. You should actually read So I said, oh, please include a link to this report. And when I read the report, it was definitely some really interesting research about the homeless situation, particularly in Portland and how it differs from other places. But the conclusion was a conclusion that you would expect to see from an organization for whom the solution has to do with affordable housing. Then the next day, I'm talking to my friend Julie Fast about mental health disorders and the mental health community. And we were talking about schizophrenia in particular and how there's this misunderstanding when you talk about mental health within the homeless population and you really cannot lump all mental health disorders together into one grouping. People who have paranoid schizophrenia, that kind of psychosis, you can be on drugs and you can be you can be better than you were, but you're not going to become a functional, independent member of society like a libertarian would want you to be. It's just not going to happen. So what do they do? The reason that we used to institutionalize people is because the downside to not institutionalizing people that have the kind of disorders that cannot just be pop a pill or do this therapy or be in a halfway house we decided we didn't want them on the streets. And then one flew over the cuckoo's nest came out and people said we cannot (laughs) treat people like this, which is true. Yeah. But there has got to be some way where society decides we're either going to make decisions for people who can't make decisions for themselves, not that they're criminal, but they can control it no more than I can become seven feet tall. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's not going (laughs) to happen no matter how much grit and hard work I have. And if we don't make the decision that the solution isn't really understanding and experiencing the difference between schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, anxiety and depression or drug abuse and where that all there's a Venn diagram where there's some overlap, then we are talking about mental illness and creating solutions that don't apply to people with schizophrenia. Right. We need to decide, do we either take care of them as a society which may not look like liberty for them, meaning people with schizophrenia, or we don't. And a lot of these solutions are made from politicians who understand intellectually, but haven't experienced it. And then there are also people who've experienced homelessness and their solutions are somewhat myopic too. Their solutions really reflect their own unique experience. So Mm -hmm. they don't reflect a societal answer. So I'm not sure. I think that if I had to say what's more important, understanding from experience is good as long as that experience doesn't limit you to just seeing what your own personal experience and and overweighing. Right. Your own personal experience. It's like if you have ex- personal experience in being homeless, you 
have lots of insight on the experience of being out on the street and being cold and not having the resources that you need or whatever, but you have no idea about politics and you don't have all of the experience is what you're saying. Right. And if you have the experience of being homeless because of a lack of resources, but you don't suffer from or maybe you suffer from anxiety and depression as a result of being. Yeah. Which one could understand. Yeah. Chicken or the egg. Right. Or maybe you were on some kind of drugs and that's because you felt helpless or it was a res- or resulted in your hopelessness or whatever it was, whatever your experience was, it may be very different than someone with schizophrenia and understanding that and how government works is two different things are two different things. Yeah. Didn't you speak to someone or go to a lecture about generational poverty? Oh, that was so interesting. Yeah. Her I name like is that. Donna Beagle. And I remember sitting in the audience and this woman, this blonde woman with her Tahari red, I remember she had this really kind of (laughs) Tahari, like a gabardine red suit. And she said, I come from generational poverty. And just looking at her, I had this cognitive dissonance. It's like, wait, what? She said, meaning my parents were migrant farmers, my grandparents were migrant farmers, and my great grandparents were migrant farmers. And I'm looking at her because most of the time when I think of a migrant farmer, I think of someone from Mexico. Oh, I (laughs) I was thinking of someone from like, Oh, my, I guess migrant farmers. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> so already I had a visual dissonance. Yeah. And then she went on to describe how the narrative of an education is what pulls you out of poverty. She said, that is a narrative to me when I was growing up that seemed like a trick. Mm. And I remember thinking, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And she went on to explain that when her teachers told her, you need to be in school, only your education will set you free She knew that they were sabotaging her because if she was in school, she wouldn't be able to to be able to do the work that needs to feed her family. Right. That makes sense. They would starve. So she felt like every time they pushed education, it was their way of saying you're going to starve. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And that is not only a lack of experience, but it's a lack of understanding. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know that they would have had to experience her life, but they certainly had to understand it on a deeper level. They had to have Rahmanis. They did. And then, you know what got her out of it? What? She got out. What? Yeah. She She got her Tahari dress. Yeah. How'd she get out of it? Well, now she has a PhD and she talks about understanding poverty. It's just, and it's not something that people talk about when they talk about diversity. You don't think, okay, I want to make sure we have X number of people who grew up below this, you know, poverty line in, my, in, in our, on our, on our team. I mean, it doesn't, yeah. so the way she got out of it was, yeah. and I'm trying to remember this, I'll put a link to her information because it was a very impactful speech. She was in some program. She had seen Diane Sawyer on television and she decided she wanted to be Diane Sawyer. But she knew she couldn't be Diane Sawyer because Diane Sawyer had rich person hair. She did have rich person hair. And Donna said that she, when she would wash her hair in the gas station bathrooms, she just thought it was, she didn't know that's not, not using products, good products affects, she just thought she didn't have rich, she thought it was in her That she just DNA. was born with rich person hair and she didn't have a bunch of hairstylists making her hair look like that. You mean that Diane for, Sawyer? Yeah. Yeah, and she thought she that she herself was not, did not have rich person hair. I think I've gone through that myself. Where you thought- Where I'm like, why isn't my hair- flowy and gorgeous like you know the ones on tv it's like i just wasn't born that way and then you find out no they just have a glam squad right and and so when she went to this program that was supposed to help her find a new career path or whatever she said i want to be diane sawyer and the person there said oh you want to be a journalist and she said no i want to be diane sawyer (laughs) 
<laughs> she had never heard the term journalist. Oh my God. She didn't know what a journalist was. And that really was the turning point for her because she did not experience anything other than generational poverty. So the concept, the solution to get her out of generational poverty was so foreign. And the people that were helping her did not understand generational poverty. So it was like this miss. It was but like you're, you're not then you're not explaining then how she got out of it because she wanted to be a journalist or she wanted to be Diane. They Sawyer. started teaching her what it meant to be a journalist. But they started showing she still had to pick the crops and stuff, right, to feed her family. Good question. What she said was all of these programs didn't matter until they provided housing for her. Ah. Once they provided housing, and by this time she had two kids because everyone she knew had kids by the time you're 14 or 15. If you didn't, what's wrong with you? Oh. When they finally provided housing for her that wasn't predicated on her working so many hours, and then they were able to discuss what it means to be a journalism journalist, rather, she said she finally had the luxury of not wondering where they were gonna lay their heads each night, and she could start thinking beyond basic Maslow's, the, yeah. the basic, basic, basic need that she needed to focus on. She never had the luxury of even thinking. Now, she didn't have a mental illness. Right. She didn't know that there was another way. So until that was provided for her, where they didn't say, you need to go to school, mm -hmm. she was like, okay, that's going to be- Thank you for that. They just gave it to her, no nice. strings attached. Then she could start to dream. I was thinking about, we have a friend who has been helping, I think, someone homeless- for a long, long time. And people put in their opinions and judgments, just like we all judge how people parent, but they were judging her for drinking and drink, drinking alcohol. Well, she if she's homeless and she wants to get help, she should stop drinking. And I was thinking about that. It's like, well, geez, you can't afford a television. You can't afford entertainment. You can't afford it. You're probably pretty depressed. You can't afford medication. That's the one thing you can enjoy or take your mind off of or take a little br mental break from. It's like you start to realize that that and that was the first time I had heard well think about it wouldn't you I mean I have a glass of wine almost every night nobody judges me on that except you maybe but Just yeah it's, it's wine kinda... and not tequila yeah, exactly exactly <laughs> want to hear my Jennifer's list I do indeed best decisions ever okay do it I picked these because I think they are great decisions that we've made or people have made that have consequences that were unintended or maybe even intended but you have to do that part of it okay okay all right Democracy by the people, for the people, of the people. All right. If you break that down, if you add democracy and then you add that uh, Lincoln quote, yep. right? Mm -hmm. Then you have to think of, of the people. What people? what people? Well, when we go in as a Western culture with democracy to try to spread democracy to other countries, then it isn't really of the people. I think about Take like take Turkey, what's happening in Turkey right now. Mm -hmm. It's salient, top of the news. Yeah. And you think about maybe it was like 2003 when Erdogan had this referendum and he became the prime minister. And it was shortly after 9-11 and the Western world really wanted him to succeed, even though he had a strong Islamist background, even though the Turkish democracy, pro-democracy demonstrators that demonstrated against him and his regime were jailed and killed and yeah. shot. But we still pinned hope on that as if this was going to be a democratic answer. And as a matter of fact, they were trying to get to become a member of the EU. And so if a people vote democratically or 
Now, I'm not suggesting that there wasn't corruption. I'm sure that there was. We have our own corruption here, and it's not a moral equivalent. We might have far less corruption than being shot at the right. polling booths. I mean, when you look at democracy, it's never just straight up democracy. There's always some kind of oh, I mean, even stuff ours, going on. Yeah, right. And also, and also, we're not a pure democracy anyway. Right. I mean, people say, oh, I do, mm. we don't want socialism. I said, then get off the roads. <laughs> yeah. All right. So of the people. By the people. For the people. For the people. If you break that down, it's what people, what people, what people. Mm -hmm. For the people. If you decide that democracy is best because there are people in a tribal culture that are suffering, then there will be losers and winners determined by you. Which tribe? Absolutely. Democracy is a great idea. Could even argue a fantastic idea. But I don't know if democracy is the ideology of the future, given the fact that maybe China's way of doing things will be a more effective way in the age of AI, where democracy really requires everyone to be participating. But with artificial intelligence, we might not need very many people to participate at all, especially if AI is better at making decisions, which Everything would indicate why wouldn't it be being able to process more data than a human brain. But they wouldn't experience it. Who wouldn't experience it? AI. What do you mean? You're saying that you have, do you have to experience these problems in order to make But what does it mean to experience it? Why wouldn't AI experience it? I mean, you're magical thinking that a fleshy human versus (laughs) an AI human would quote unquote experience. What does it mean to experience? A meat being instead of a metal being a flesh. So that's not a best decision ever. No, I don't know about ever, you know, maybe yeah. for now and maybe for a hundred years prior and maybe another hundred years into the future. I don't know if forever. Ready for the next one? Mm-hmm. Penicillin and antibiotics. Which is great. The infectious disease model has helped us survive in ways that would be are inconceivable. But now we are seeing the rise of superbugs. And it's not just because of the overprescription of antibiotics. It's also because antibiotics in our food sources and also because antibiotics can only move as fast as the industry that creates them, which is based on capitalism. And bacteria is moving faster than the antibiotics can catch them. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's not a huge profit for pharmaceutical companies to invest in new antibiotics because, number one, it takes a long time. Number two, the bacteria are very specific, so they might be only affecting certain diseases that aren't prevalent enough to make, you know, they're like orphan diseases that they're really bad diseases, but there are just not enough people that have them. So there's not any incentive for pharmaceutical companies to create medicine for these diseases. And all those diseases don't have a clue of how many diseases are out there. Diseases. Just like diseases. Just like the tribes. Exactly. So <laughs> I think bacteria is moving super, super fast. I think penicillin and antibiotics are great, but perhaps the infectious disease model needs to be balanced with the chronic disease because we are living longer, more chronically. And we call those chronicies. Chronicies? Yeah. <laughs> and we call using antibiotics to kill bacteria whack-a-mole. Yeah, ain't that the truth? I did love that game, though. Anyway, child labor laws. Those laws were supposed to help all these children all over the world or mostly just the U.S. Well, I think there are two main trafficking patterns. And I use trafficking kind of as a general because some of them are labor laws. Some of them are sex trafficking. But the first involves domestic and intra-regional trafficking where the children are exploited in legitimate labor markets like 
mining or fishing or agriculture, market vendors, maybe bus assistants, or even domestic servants. And the second kind of trafficking involves the exploitation of prostitution domestically and internationally. And I think we could, as a society, make a statement that that second kind of trafficking is just something as humans that we need to stamp out. I'm sorry that that provides an opportunity for your family where you sell your daughter into slavery and that provides your family with enough food that, okay, that there needs to be a better solution. What so, about like India where they maim their children? Right. Those kinds of things, those are based on problems, societal problems with the caste system, which still exists, even though it's outlawed, it still exists. But there are we think of like five castes in India. Within each caste, there are literally thousands of subcastes. So there are millions of castes. I mean, I think it's very clear to say that your friend who came back with this different idea of looking at sex trafficking, you know. I wish uh, I could remember the exact story and even who told me this. I'm trying to, while I'm sitting here, I'm trying to rack my brain. Who told me that? Gosh, I can't remember. But I think it's okay to say, okay, that's just bad shit that we need to. It is bad shit. But Ooh, the, other kind, the shit. other kind of trafficking where they're exploiting children in the legitimate labor markets, that becomes different. I think you need to look at that each of those situations totally differently. So I that's my answer. I think a deeper understanding, but I think it's fair to say that if you're maiming children and selling human beings to be sex slaves, I think we could make a statement that um, I would go out on a limb and saying, I don't need to experience that to understand that that's a problem. Now, I'm not saying I, I would know I'm the solutions. I think I'm going to send you out there. I'm not saying that that would mean that I would create a solution that would be knowledgeable and wise. Right. I don't know that I could create a wise solution. I could condemn it, but I'm not sure I could create a wise solution. But that is two reasons. One, I don't really understand it and I haven't experienced it. Yeah. The internet, or as I like to say, the interwebs. The interwebs. I think that the one thing about the internet, it has connected all of us, but it is also shows us what we don't have. So it shows us what we can have. It shows us what's possible. That is very inspirational, but it also shows us what we don't have. And sometimes what we don't know can be, it can be safe. Sometimes knowing what other people have is worse than not knowing what other people have. On one hand, you can be yearning for it and know what's possible. On the other hand, if what is possible is out of your reach, as out of your reach as be being seven foot tall, then it just becomes a divider. And I think it becomes more of a negative. Income inequality is obviously something that is a challenge in society, but it's exacerbated by the fact that we see it. If we didn't see what we didn't have, if we didn't see that people that were, if we thought we were the haves, yeah. And then all of a sudden we realize we're the have-nots. Yes, exactly. The wheel. Oh, I love the wheel. I will just say that I think that the invention of the wheel, which I think was, and the reason I know this is because I have thought a lot about this vis-a-vis -vis luggage. So the wheel was invented. Luggage? Think, yeah. The wheel was invented like in 3500 BCE, before the common era. <laughs> and luggage was, you know, invented way back when and became different iterations of carrying way before the wheel well yeah if you think of like carrying crap yeah but it guess when the idea to put the wheel on luggage was patented oh i'm gonna guess like the 20th century absolutely okay first of all when i used to travel in the 80s for business all the time back in the day, I would get those metal pulleys and then that I would you strap my your, luggage yeah, on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because you couldn't get luggage. I mean, maybe no. you could. But 1970 or 1972 was the patent for the wheel on luggage. What took so long? God, people! 
people. I like it now because you can spin them around and take them in different directions. Oh, I li- you, do I like you like the, the four-wheel luggage or the two-wheel luggage? I like the four-wheel luggage. Because you can just push it. Yeah. I know I have a friend who said, who needs that lazy? And I thought to myself, well, te- yeah. technically you don't need wheels at all, but like if you're going to have <laughs> wheels, make it better than two. We don't need remote controls either, but we use those. I know. Want to hear the last one? Yes. The light bulb. Okay. My least favorite. Why? Because before the light bulb, we'd only work when it was daylight. And now because of the light bulb, we have to work a lot, 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 lot longer. It's hate all that. because of the light bulb that we have to work so hard. Damn that, Thomas, Thomas Edison. Well, I love this book, How We Got to Now. And I guess it's, a, it's also a PBS special. And I watched one of the episodes. I don't recommend the documentary, but oh. the book is really good. And they were talking about how Thomas Edison really didn't invent the incandescent light bulb. There were all kinds of patents and inventions. And his contention in this book is there's no Sloan genius. All these inventions are iterations. But in this one in particular, he's talking about how Thomas Edison was a great marketer. He paid journalists to talk about his inventions. And when he had the light bulb, he created this whole extravaganza and paid journalists to cover it. He would allow journalists to come in one by one into this private booth where he had on a table a lamp with a single light bulb. And when the journalist would say to him, how long does this light bulb last? He'd say, practically forever. (laughs) And then when they would leave right before it blew out or went out because they only it lasted maybe a couple of minutes. He would like secretly screw in the next one and then have the next <laughs> journalist come in. I mean, don't you think most inventors that are famous for their inventions, there's probably like five people or 10 people walking around like, damn it, I'm the one that came up with that. He just took all the credit. Oh, for sure. I mean, and that's documented, but also inventions are iterations. All right. Ready for the sort of fact? Wait, hold on. Yes. All right. This has been a really interesting study, and you can guess where it came from. Let me think. P. U. No. What were we talking? T. P. U. Turkish. Prestigious. Turkey. Prestigious University. Is it Turkey or Turkish? Well, there's two. It depends on what what side of the country. (laughs) They have the civil wars. The Turkish one is more delightful. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) This is Turkey prestigious university. They interviewed three sets of people, people who had experienced problems, people who understood problems, and people who created solutions. And all three suggested that their experience or their understanding or their solution would be 98% more effective than someone else's. (laughs) Thanks for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes for every episode of ACLR and links to all resources mentioned at applycuriositylab.com forward slash blog. It's there that we'll wait to read your answers to each week's curiosity bite. Two, in order to avoid missing curiosity-bitten conversations, Subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and all the other spots that podcasts hang out and wait to be discovered. Toss up a review, especially if you have nice things to say. Finally, for all things Applied Curiosity, including information on workshops and your free membership to the Tribe of the Curious, go to ApplyCuriosityLab.com. In the meantime, elevate curiosity.